Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey guys, welcome to this week's podcast. Got a whole bunch of stuff to talk about this week. I'm not sure why so much news popped up, but let's just jump right into it and not waste any time. First, I think Nintendo released something last week. Anyway, <laughs> just kidding. And you know I'm going to have to talk about the Switch at least a little bit. Um, first, I actually got one on launch day. I didn't have any problems with it, and mine works fine. Um, there was a lot of reports of the people with the left Joy-Con not connecting or losing connection. Um, And I live in the middle of New York City, you know, around tons and tons of buildings. So basically, there's just a net of wireless interference around me, and I haven't had any problems at all. So that would lead me to guess, total total guess here, that um, the problem is probably uh, related to manufacturing and not design. Um, If it was a design thing, I think I would for sure have a problem with it, because I'm maybe seven, eight feet away from my TV and where the switch is, and I don't have any problems at all. Um, I fix it, did a pretty cool teardown, which is playing uh, next to me. Um, also, uh, a few people had found out some interesting things on it, like the Joy-Con controllers can be paired with Windows and Mac and Android, which is kind of neat. Um, People are already trying to make 3D printed designs to kind of modify the Switch itself. And I think some guy even cut the um, the controller port thingy in half and attached that to the, uh, the actual tablet. Um, and somebody else kind of went through and did a full video on uh, how badly it could be damaged. Um, and he really just went through and tried to break it pretty much. And what he found was, while it did eventually break on him, it was very durable, and the only thing that he noticed was the screen could scratch pretty easy. So definitely get a screen protector if you feel like taking it out with you. But, um, you know, overall, it's really hard to speculate on with such a, you know, a short period of time. Uh, the one thing I will say, though, <coughs> excuse me, is uh, I don't find the controller to be too small. I found that I got used to it pretty quickly. But with controllers and with anything ergonomic-related, there's really two scenarios. It's can you get used to it, or are you stubborn, or does it actually hurt? So I'll never forget. It's kind of a dumb story, but it perfectly puts this into perspective. Um, I was doing IT for one company, and some lady there would only use a touchpad. She couldn't use a mouse because he said it gave her hand cramps. And she was very cool. So I, you know, I used to kind of tease her about being older and you know not knowing how to use technology, until the company a few months later issued me a new laptop, and the touchpad on it was so bad that my hand would cramp up severely. I had to bring a mouse with me everywhere. And the first thing I did, as you can imagine, is go apologize to Betty for for making fun of her about her touchpad mouse thing. So um, there are people reporting that, you know, it's just too small. They have big hands. You know, I got a lot of big friends that, you know, my friend Jason's a bass player. His hands are like, you know, I can't see in the camera, like that much bigger than mine. I mean, he's a bass player. You got to have big hands. I don't think he could use the Switch 
The guy's like 6'3", 6'4", and his hands are twice his length of mine. So that, you know, I haven't really figured that out yet on who's who. I guess uh, some website went around and measured all of their coworkers' hands and said, you know, who, uh, who felt it was more comfortable, and the smaller-handed people, the more comfortable it was. Yeah, no shit, but <laughs> it's a matter of... Of if it, is it actually an ergonomic cramp? Is it going to hurt? Are you going to get carpal tunnel after Zelda gaming for five hours, or is it just a matter of getting used to it? And you know, I guess that was a really long way of saying I just got used to it. I had no problem with it. Um, other than that, there's no virtual console yet. You know, I, I've tried. I bought Zelda and uh, Shovel Knight, the full Shovel Knight, that all all three of them. And overall, I mean, there's just you know, there's nothing wrong with it. A lot of speculation. Um, and the only, uh, the only other thing I'd like to comment on is Zelda. And, uh, I, I'm not a fan of a lot of those games because I just, I don't like two hours of training. Um, a lot of the older 3D games, low frame rates got me really dizzy. I would actually get motion sick while playing them. And this is none of that. Um, you just jump right into the game and start playing. There's no crappy training. It's much like the older Zeldas where you're training is finding new items and learning how to use them slowly so you're not just sent into a training you know forced to memorize a bunch of stuff and then thrown out and also the it's a as nintendo said a million times it's an open world you could pretty much go wherever the you know wherever the limitations of your skills will take you um and there isn't point one to two to three to four you can kind of just do whatever you want so um you know, I wanted to keep this pretty short. Um, I'll try to get Scott on soon, maybe even today if I can get him over here fast enough, to, to do a full debate. And I, I really need Scott with me here because we grew up together and we have been, um, just like every other gaming nerd, we have been uh, heated debates of these consoles over the years. And we disagree on so much and agree on so much. So after years of him and I nerding out over this, it's finally time to do one on a podcast and see what we both think of the Switch. So if it's not on today's, it'll be on next week's. Next, this week's update to the Analog NT Mini added cores for the Game King, the Game Mate, and the Supervision, three not very well-known portable consoles. Um, and I'm sure a lot of people might be listening going, you know, who cares who, who even had those, but that's kind of the point of why I'm so excited about Keptris's work. You know, everybody loves Nintendo, and that's never going to go away one way or another, but these other consoles might be lost forever, and I love the fact that we're preserving them in a real FPGA core, so it's a full, usable, you know, as close to a good experience as you can, because um, these cores will last forever. So that's cool. He He's not just adding cores for us to play. He's preserving history. Not to sound too cheesy or anything, but... Um, so big props to him for continuously adding this stuff. And he's also working on cartridge connectors, which should be available for purchase within a few weeks, months at the latest. And the ones that he's working on at the moment are Atari 2600, 7800, ColecoVision, Intellivision, Odyssey 2, Master System, Game Gear, and Game Boy. The Game Boy one will have a link port so that you could play other Game Boy or against an actual Game Boy or Game Boy Color. Um, and the Master System will be cartridge only, no card slot, and no 3D adapter because he wants to put the 3D adapter on his controller adapter so that you could actually use it with both the Famicom and the Master System. So I think that sums it up for NT Mini this week, and um, I'll just report back when there's any other major updates or when these are for sale. Next, Smoke Monster has been working with QWERTY Moto and I think a few others to update his MSU-1 audio packs. 
I think it's almost complete, or uh, if it isn't complete yet, it's about to be. But basically now there's two categories. There's the original and the newer one. So the newer SD to SNES cartridges, uh, the ROM carts, have a built-in audio amp that uh, that's good quality and ensure that the volume of the MSU1 audio is loud enough and clear enough. You could also do that mod to existing SD to SNES revisions. Um, so those sh people who have one of those two scenarios should use the newer files, and anybody like myself with an older SD to SNES that's not been modded at all, uh, use the older audio files. Um, going forward, I'm not sure if they'll be supporting both, maybe just the newer ones, but to be honest, um, doing the audio upgrade is really something that I think is a worthy thing to do. I just, uh, I gotta get in touch with somebody and see who wants to make the boards and actually do the upgrade process. Because while it's not hard, um, it's just, you know, soldering onto something that's that expensive is not something beginners should be doing. You should be practicing on something cheap and replaceable. So I'll, I guess I'll reach out to people, um, or if anybody knows uh, that they want to do it, just let me know and I'll, I'll pass the info along. But Bordy has already put the PCBs up on GitHub for anybody that wants to make their own open source totally for free um so it should be pretty easy to to get that upgrade done but uh let me know if you guys want uh, if any modders out there want to do it um and i'll probably update next week or something next up my friend phil sent me this guide on how to wash a crt in a dishwasher and it just i i had to talk about it please don't do that <laughs> um I've seen people sell clean boards on eBay where they basically take arcade boards and put them in a dishwasher, and it just, you know, there are ways to do things like that that are safe. Um, I just, it's really hard to do. You need distilled water or non-conductive fluid. Um, you need to dry the boards in the UV light. You can't just use a hair dryer or compressed air to blow it out. You know, there's microscopic water particles that when they dry, they'll either act as a, you know, a way to create shorts or they'll just rust out spots. So, you know, there's a video on my website where I take apart a console and then I wash the hell out of a, the plastic, just the plastic. And then I don't put it in the dishwasher either because that'll ruin all the labels on it. I just do it right in the sink with some, uh, I use Goo Gone to get the funk off. And then I use uh, just dish detergent, mostly to get the like greasy film of the Goo Gone off. And I do that on almost all my plastic consoles and it makes them all come right back to life. No, no need to put them in a, a dishwasher and definitely don't take a CRT tube out and put it in a dishwasher unless like you know unless you're you're set up in an environment that it's designed for that I actually did work for a company that partnered with somebody to do a prototype where it was a, submer a submersible server so imagine like an aquarium with non-conductive fluid the motherboard's in it and then instead of liquid cooled it was actually I swear it was actually liquid nitrogen cooled um, and the metal pipes they used got so cold that the pipes cooled the non-conductive fluid, and then the liquid nitrogen pipes cooled the, the hottest chips on the board, and then they used, like, fans, basically, inside of it to swirl the water, water non-conductive fluid around, so you, you actually had a computer that would stay cold longer and cheaper, and they overclocked it to, like, six gigs or something crazy like that. So, you know, unless you know what you're doing with non-conductive fluid, don't be sticking PCBs or anything in the dishwasher. I've seen so many of them up on eBay, and it just drives me nuts. So it's a Bob public services announcement. You know, only you can prevent forest fires, and only you could 
prevent idiots from putting CRTs in a dishwasher. Next, Marcus, the creator of the open source scan converter, has just announced another very cool project. He found that the CPS2 mainboards have digital video outputs on them, so he was able to make a board that translates those to HDMI and processes it fully digitally, including upscaling. So first, for anybody that doesn't know, the CPS2 boards are basically the guts that are for all of the Capcom arcade boards from the 90s, or the majority of them. Um, I have a link in the description to the wiki of it, but there's just all the Street Fighter games, Alien vs. Predator, you know, one of the X-Men vs. Street Fighter. There's just a ton of awesome games that are covered under the CPS2. So now you'd actually be able to use those with his invention on a, a flat screen in full digital-to-digital. So this is great for a lot of people like the guys at iFix, our, uh, iFix Machines in Brooklyn that host those arcade uh, battles pretty much because you could find zero latency 1080p monitors. There was the, the BenQ and I, I think the Asus might have had a model. But um, to combine a, a no lag digital to digital solution with that really is the next best thing to a CRT. While all of us old fart gamers would always prefer a CRT for a million reasons, it's just not feasible all the time anymore, especially with them getting so rare and hard to find, hard to, fi hard to fix. So Marcus's invention basically takes care of that. Um, he's going to have scan lines, um, and it is a, a true integer scale, um, as well as non-integer, so you'd be able to fit inside. And I think he's just working on the refresh rates too, so it doesn't have the same issue as the OSSC. So that way, if your monitor is compatible, it's just the original everything upscaled to whatever resolution you want on a flat screen. Or um, uh, if your flat screen isn't compatible, uh, he's working on ways to change the timings to make it compatible. So all in all, it's a pretty awesome contraption, and anybody that owns those old Capcom arcade boards would definitely want to pick this up. Um, even if you already have a CRT that's working, you never know when you might need something like this. So... Good call, and I'm glad he's continuing to make new and awesome projects for the community. Speaking of CPS2, Smoke Monster also actually finished his roll-up packs for the CPS2 games, and he sent me a bunch of information about some of these that I honestly didn't know about. Um, the, and I'll try to get them all right, so please excuse me if I'm wrong. I guess the first is Street Fighter Alpha 3 has a new hack. There's a bunch of secret codes that could be entered at boot to unlock new game modes and extra characters. It's difficult to pull off the codes, so an effort was made by a group at Arcade Projects to build a patch that enables everything automatically. That's pretty awesome. Um, there's also a project called Halfway to Hell, which is basically a rebuild of the Pro Gear Red Label game. Um, and it's, it's basically taking a shooter and then just kind of cleaning up everything they could. Uh, kind of like the Mortal Kombat 2 Plus project that I was talking about a few, I think a few months ago at this point. Um, and finally, another CPS2 character unlock hack um, for Marvel vs. Capcom. So I guess the arcade version had the hidden characters too, and this patch just has them unlocked when you, uh, when you boot it. So very awesome that we're still finding all these things today and that we're able to play the games this way as well. You know, it's not cheating, it's just, uh, you know, it's just unlocking things that may have been forgotten if somebody didn't create these. So uh, thanks to Smoke Monster for all the work and for sending me all those awesome hacks. Next up, the GDMU is going on sale this Saturday. So that's the optical drive emulator for the Dreamcast that allows you to load everything off of flash memory. 
I haven't had a chance to use one of these yet. I'm going to try to get one on Saturday. Um, I think they usually sell out immediately. And I guess the price of one is 115 euros. So it's a lot of money. Um, and, it's you know, it's kind of... To me, it's a debate. You know, my Dreamcast plays uh, burned games. Uh, I own all the Dreamcast games I want to play, but it's very often that I'll use, like, the 240p test suite or, you know, fan hacks, translations, things like that. So do I really want to spend this much on it? I mean, I probably will just to get it in to review, but uh, as much as this is awesome, um, and if you're a big Dreamcast fan, kind of a must, that price is still kind of pushing it. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not knocking the seller, by the way. I know these things, small hobby projects, cost more than people would ever realize, and I'm sure this guy isn't raking in millions of dollars off of these things, but uh, it just... You know, I have to be realistic in the fact that I can buy a reel of 100 CDRs for very cheap. Um, so for the purpose of just playing and trying out different games, I don't know if this would be worth it. But for the purpose of preserving your Dreamcast, um, always being able to use it no matter what optical format dies. And, you know, a lot of these replacement lasers are starting to get harder to find. So, you know, I guess at the moment, just decide what scenario is best for you. Um, but I'll definitely review it once I get it in and let everybody know my thoughts on it. There's a Raspberry Pi OS called Laka, and version 2 release candidate 2 just was released. Um, basically, it's another one of those ways to flash your Raspberry Pi card with a way to play tons of different arcade games and emulation cores. And it's become my favorite way to play arcade games on my Raspberry Pi. Um, I just, I love the interface, I, I love the way everything works, all the, the crazy amount of features, um, and I've really, I've had the best luck overall. And also, it's the only one of the, all of the softwares I've found that actually allows you to use the Wi-Fi built into the Raspberry Pi 3. Everything else kind of just crashes on it, which is nice because I have that attached to, you know, where I play my arcade games, which is nowhere near a, um, a network cable. So this way I could transfer ROMs back and forth just over the network. Um, I'll have a link in the description to the installation instructions on my site for anybody that wants to do it, but the only thing, um, that's the only two noteworthy things to say about this, uh, about version 2 versus version 1 is it's based on Libre-Elect instead of Open-Elect. Um, I think I said that wrong. Libre-Elect, Open-Elect. And, uh, if you're transferring files over the Wi-Fi, you need to turn on file sharing, not just connect to the Wi-Fi. took me a couple of minutes to figure out why I couldn't access it. But other than that, it just seems like, you know, you could tell a few things are a little snappier on Revision 2 versus Revision 1, but I was playing Mortal Kombat and really enjoying the hell out of it. So if anybody has a Raspberry Pi, I would definitely give this software a try. Um, and I haven't really been spending too much more time with Pi testing. I hope to get back to that as soon as I have any free time at all. But uh, if you're just getting into it now, this software is definitely the one I recommend starting with, just to see. There's another pretty big update to the Verisness project. The creator has gotten sprites working pretty darn well. Um, and it's I watched a lot of the video of him testing out different games, and the games look great. And it's really awesome to hear the excitement in his voice during all this. I mean, it just anybody that's ever poured that much effort into a project and to see it start to come to fruition, like I totally, I got excited for him. Like I had a big smirk on my face while I was watching the video. So uh, definitely check it out if you're interested. And uh, I mean, it looks like he's coming closer and closer to making a true FPGA-based SNES. 
The team behind the Raspberry Pi software builds is now officially supporting 240p over composite video. So while most of us probably wouldn't use composite video, it's still a cheap and easy way to just, you buy one of those adapters, it looks kind of like a headphone adapter, but it's also got the yellow composite out. You could plug it right into a Raspberry Pi and plug that right into an old CRT and start gaming with a lot of these emulators and arcade hacks. So, uh, you know, anytime, anytime we as the retro gaming community get even the slightest bit of recognition, I'm excited because there's a whole bunch of us that really need 240p support for what we do. Uh, and even if this is only directly over composite, I bet you the people will find other creative ways to use it. So big thanks to the team for recognizing us and adding that support. This next one put a really big smile on my face. Uh, I saw on Twitter Artemio retweeted that Jordan Mechner, the creator of Prince of Persia, a, a game I loved as a kid, met John Carmack, who I think everybody knows who he is, uh, Wolfenstein, Doom, all those amazing games. Um, they met for the first time, and John Carmack handed him 40 bucks for the copies of Karateka and Prince of Persia he stole in his youth. Um, and that, that just made me smile uh, for a million reasons, and it brought back so many memories, too, of like... You know, going over to my cousin Scott's house and copying the three and a half inch floppy drive, and then going to school the next day and using the school copier to copy the manual, because some of the copy protection would be like, go to page four, paragraph three, and tell me the third word, and um, you know that's the only way that you'd be able to. Yeah, that was their copy protection, and that's how you'd be able to play the game. So it's funny, and it also kind of brought up other memories and things in my mind about like. Um, how would you have known about some of this software and preserving it? So, like, if, if the pirates never um, never scanned those manuals, maybe those games, or at least a few of them, might have been lost forever because there's no way to get into them without the manual. So the, the dirty pirates kind of preserved the game forever. Kind of like what we talked about last week with uh, that new video game preservation society thing, uh, the History Museum, or whichever one is basically the software side the name of it already but um and you know the other thing is like a lot of these games i would have never discovered if it wasn't for stealing them you know it's not like today where you could download a torrent of every game you know if i went over and you know saw a new game and copied it and brought it home and loved it you know i would have never found out about that and the internet wasn't the way it is today you can't just go on youtube and see a video of a game and say oh i, I want that it really was a lot of word of mouth and while, you know, while I feel terrible for being a shitty little kid that stole games, the other side of that is I would have never been able to afford to buy them anyway, so it's not like, you know, I, no one lost money. But at the same time, it kind of made me think, like, with music, if you discover a band that you would have never heard of if it wasn't for somebody emailing you an MP3 or you stole their album, and you love the band, like my favorite band in flames, I didn't know who they were, my friend copied me one of their CDs, and I fell in love, and I bought every album since, and seen them live 24 times or something, 26, you know, bought all their live DVDs, like, you know, obviously I've paid them back for that one album that I stole, which I think I rebought anyway years later. But the point is, I would have never even known about that band if I hadn't stolen it first. But it doesn't seem the same with video games anymore. Especially nowadays when people spend, you know, hundreds of thousands for smaller games. And, you know, a billion for huge games. You can't really steal this one and then move on to the next. So, it's... But you do have the luxury of going on YouTube, downloading demos, 
So it's kind of, it, it brought up a then versus now, and it, I don't know, that, that picture just made me smile for a million reasons, like I said before. But I just thought that was really cool, and I wish, uh, if I ever ran into any of those guys, I would probably do the same thing. <laughs> I'm positive I paid for a copy of Wolfenstein and Doom and Prince of Persia at least twice each over the years, but I did steal that initial copy, I'm sure. So uh, I would love to, if I run into either of those guys, I'll take them out for a beer or something. So I bought a few things the other day that I wanted to share with everybody, because they're a little silly, but I love them, and I think you guys might like them too. The first one's pretty awesome. It's the same Star Fox Legacy cart that I uh, got it last year, but this one has all three games overclocked. So it has Star Fox 1 and 2, and then the Competition Edition, and all are overclocked, and I think you get a better frame rate, and they, they play a little bit faster, which I, I just I thought that was a really neat thing to actually be able to try on real hardware. And the next thing I got is kind of ridiculous, but I loved it and I wanted it anyway. Um, I own, I think, every FX game, or at the very least, every NTSC FX game, Super FX game, but I wanted this anyway. This is an all-in-one Super FX cart. So it's the, by the same company, RetroCircuits.com, um, and it has every FX game, Super FX game on it. Uh, and it's really well built, you know, uh, custom PCB, um, and it just, it works perfect. And I know it's a little silly, because this thing was really expensive. Um, it was $155, which I think it's about the price of all the FX games anyway. But I just love it. I know it's a little ridiculous if I already own the games, but uh, those games will be staying in storage, um, where they, you know, they could be preserved, if you will, and I'll be using this um, as the main way to play FX games. And I just thought it was awesome. And also, it uh, it lights up when you plug it into the SNES, which normally I don't like LEDs, bright LEDs, but just having the cartridge glow, uh, it was very cool. So big thank you to Retro Circuits, um, SNES Unlimited. And if you uh, if you guys were looking for one, I mean, I would say if if you're not a collector and you don't have the FX games, um, you know this this might be a good way to go. But if you have them and you're just looking for a fun new way to play them, I mean this is it's just it's all the same games, but it's just very neat, you know, you have everything all in one. So I just wanted to share that for anybody that was looking for some cool repros. Next, it looks like somebody used a Super Famicom to make a portable Super Famicom. So basically, they took um, the case of one and then made a consoleized uh, with LCD screen version of it. So you're holding the, the full Super Famicom console, but the controller's built in and the screen's right there. Um, and it's kind of neat. Um, I hate to see old consoles get cut up like that, but it's still a Super Famicom, so I guess it's, uh, it's good enough for me, but... Just a, a fun thing I wanted to pass along. Next, version 1.1 of Conker's Hyrule Tale was just released. This is a homebrew game that was based off of A Link to the Past that has MSU1 audio made by a lot of the same team members. Khan, Seth, I think Cordimoto worked on it a little bit as well. Uh, and this is the latest update patch for it. And it basically sticks Conquer inside Zelda. Um, I only played, I probably only played about 20, 30 minutes of it. But it's a fun game. Uh, it's not as hard and as serious as Parallel Worlds, but uh, it's definitely a new take on it. And it's foul. I mean, if you have a twisted sense of humor, you're going to love this game. I certainly loved it. So, um, you know, it's, I love 
any kind of fan hack like this, um, and it's very cool to see one done with such attention to detail and such fun little puzzles and stuff. So uh, that's definitely on my list of games to play eventually. Now that I got the Switch and a bunch of other consoles I need to play through games of, it'll probably be forever, but uh, really looking forward to getting to it, and they did a great job. It looks like a new FPGA dev kit is out called the DE10 Nano from Terrasic. Um, and it looks, to, I mean, it, at first glance, it almost reminds me of a Raspberry Pi, but FPGA-based. And um, I don't know how useful things like this would be for, for gaming or for writing your own cores, but I think stuff like this, I mean, it's only $130. Uh, it's probably a good start. So uh, if anybody has any info on it or, or suggestions for people that want to get started with FPGA programming, um, you know, is something like this a good place to start? Uh, is it a good way to play games at all? I just, I was kind of intrigued after the NT Mini and um, the amazing cores that Kevtris has been writing. It kind of piqued my interest a little bit when I saw this. So um, I really don't have any information on it. Maybe you guys will be able to post in the comments if you have any experience with it or things like this. I missed this bit of news from a few weeks ago. Thunderstruck on the Planet Virtual Boy forums has finished English translation of the virtual fishing game for Virtual Boy. Um, I have a Virtual Boy, and the games that are good on it are awesome, like um, Wario, and I, I even love Mario Tennis. Um, it's got some, you know, it's got some bad games, but uh, Virtual fish Fishing was kind of neat, and uh, if you have a ROM cart, uh, you're able to actually play it on original hardware. Next up, I got my Neo SD AES ROM card in. Um, I haven't worked on a full video review of it yet, because uh, I'm still waiting on a, a whole bunch of different things, as well as the Darksoft's ROM cart, so I could compare the two. Um, the first thing I got to say is, though, I don't mind the loading times. I think a lot of people were really harping on this for it, um, and I think I've just gotten so used to the newer consoles. Like, when I got Mortal Kombat on PS3, to wait for a match to load feels longer than waiting one of the, for one of these games to load. And once the game is loaded, that's it. It's in the flash memory, so even if you power off and power back on, you could go right back to that game. Um, I did have a bunch of problems with it, but before I go any further, I'm pretty sure there's a good chance that the problems I've had are related to my individual console. Um, but some issues I did directly have with it is um, you have to register the serial number on the Neo SD website in order to get to the downloads. Um, and your downloads are restricted. You can't just go and get the latest firmware. Um, which, I don't know, that's... It, you should just be able to download what you need. I mean, I guess I could see if there's if they want to control revisions, so if they know the first thousand they made need this firmware and then the next need that firmware, that, that does make sense to me, but it's still, you know, I want to just log on and get what I need. Um, also, uh, the support, like I had to go, I had to Google the Neo SD, find the thread on neogeo.com, and then find their email address there. There's no real direct content, but um, once I did email them, they were very responsive and very helpful. But the, the two problems I had with it are, um, when you load a game, you actually see like noise on the video screen. But as soon as you restart the game, so either you use the menu command to go back to the menu, or, um, or you actually power cycle, when you load it a second time, the noise is gone. And it took me a while to, to realize that pattern. So, you know, you could load a game on SD, uh, from the SD up so it takes a few minutes to load. There's all that scrambling over the screen. 
go back to the main menu, load it again, works perfect. Go back to the main menu, load it again, there's noise on the screen. So at first I just automatically assumed maybe it was a power issue. Either maybe it's drawing too power or, or too much power, or maybe I need my caps replaced. Um, so I asked a friend to come over with his AES, and I also was working with the NeoSD team. And they were working on it, and uh, they sent me a beta BIOS to try that really didn't do anything. But then when my friend came over, I plugged the uh, the cart into his AES, and it wouldn't work at all. So I'm I'm sure that that was just the beta BIOS that they were asking me to test. That's not you know I'm I'm sure it's not an issue. But that goes back to the fact that I can't just go on their website and download the original firmware. I had to email them, wait for them to respond. Then you know I have, my friend hasn't had a chance to come back over yet. So uh, it's frustrating. Um, and I don't mind being an early adopter. I, I, you know, a lot of people always say, "Oh, day one updates," but I don't mind that at all. It gets us, it gets these things in our hands earlier. I would have signed up to be a beta tester anyway. I don't mind working through this stuff, um, and their communication is great. I just, the process has been a little bumpy. You can't just PayPal them. You have to like uh, do a bank transfer. Getting a hold of them at first was a little hard. So I do, you know. But overall, I mean, it's been working great other than that, you know? So I'll, whenever I load a new game, I load it. Um, if there's garbage on the screen, I do the A, D, and start. It just goes back to the menu, and you hit load again, and it's instant because it's in Flash. And then the game works fine. Um, I did test it with a 64-gig Flash card, or, um, SD card, and as long as you format it FAT32, it works fine. So, uh, you know, I guess my basic preliminary review is... Uh, it works as long as I could figure out what the garbage on the screen is um, definitely would recommend it I mean there's nothing wrong with it at all and hopefully they'll kind of get a hold of their firmware and their support and, and everything else but um, you know the guys were very nice to me they keep uh, we keep exchanging emails they're working on the issue and now that I have the other version of the firmware back on it I can try it in other AES consoles as well um, but I did for the record Smoke Monster actually sent me a video of ways to check common AES problems. So things like, uh, you know, traces coming up, bad caps, and um, I went through and really tested everything, and it, has, it had nothing, I think it had nothing to do with my board. Uh, it just seemed the every other loading thing. So uh, it's kind of like a very short, brief review, um, but it seems like problems that'll all be worked out soon, like really soon. And at the end of the day, I mean, uh, if maybe my revision AES and this revision cart, I have to boot every game twice. I mean, we're talking about an extra five seconds. It's annoying. For 500 bucks, I would like it to not happen, but now I get to play all the AES games I always wanted to play. So, on the other hand, it is kind of a small price to pay. Uh, but I'm really looking forward to, to getting in Dark Softs and to do a full review of both um, and, a, you know, a feature comparison. Um, and I'm you know, I'm thinking, depending on price and features, maybe one is just a better fit for each situation. Maybe there isn't going to be an official winner on it, but we'll see soon enough. And speaking of Darksoft, he actually posted on his forum um, an update to his uh, Neo Geo flashcart project. Uh, and he listed a couple of features, some of which have been known for a while, but I'll just run through them real quick. Uh, it's a multi-slot cart. So I believe he's going to be able to load four carts into RAM so that when you first power it on, it'll be much like the MVS cabinets with four carts. So you'll be able to select your game and it loads instantly. 
He says the longest game takes 18 seconds to load completely, and I believe that means from SD card to flash, not from flash to the screen. Um, and you could, just like, uh, you know, similar features to many other flash carts, you could boot directly to the menu, boot directly to a game um, if you want it to act as if it's a, a real cart, and then you would just press the button combination to get back to the menu. Um, a nicer looking menu, and he's doing a lot more bug fixing. Um, and testing with different BIOSes to make sure that they work with even some of the bootleg BIOSes. So um, it seems very promising, and I'm really looking forward to test it whenever I get it in. He said the MVS will be released first, and then the AES after, and I don't believe he specified a time frame. So I don't know if it's a month different, three months different. Uh, hopefully I'll find out soon, and uh, when it comes time for release, I hope to get him on the podcast as well. Um, and also talk about a lot of his other work, the CPS2 stuff and everything. So I just wanted to give a, a brief update, and uh, I'm really psyched to finally get to play AES games, because I wasn't going to spend 1500 on Windjammers or 15000 on Neo Turf Masters. Um, and uh, I, I'm really looking forward to doing a shootout of, of both ROM carts. So I'll keep everybody posted uh, as soon as I have any info on the Darksoft one. Next... Kind of surprising, um, somebody named Becker, who's new on the Shmups forums, just posted his new and updated revision of the open source scan converter called the OSSC Wolf Edition. Um, it looks really awesome. Um, basically, he rearranged it and added audio. What he did, it's very much oversimplifying what he did, by the way, um, but I'll run through the features real quick and then give a little more to the story. So he added audio RCA inputs, both stereo left and right, as well as a SPDIF input. Um, that could be used with either the component video inputs or the VGA input. And all of that will be routed through the HDMI output port. Um, no DVI HDMI selection, it's all HDMI, um, and no upgrade board afterwards needed, it just all will work. Um, he also arranged it in a way so that all of the connectors are in back, and that the SCART connector on the side, the wire will run behind it. So unlike now with the OSSC kind of has wires in every direction, um, this is all going to be routed out the back. Um, also, he added the same filtering options to the VGA input that are already available on the SCART input, um, which I personally love because I use it for all my testing and in different scenarios. Your average user would basically leave it off, and then if you see interference on the screen, turn it on until it goes away. Um, once again, oversimplifying things a little bit. Um, and he added a few other things like better ESD protection on the digital outputs and uh, stuff like that. But, uh, I mean, it's really awesome. And uh, I think he actually said that he took the schematic that Marcus posted last year and built it from that. So he essentially had to make his own based off of Marcus's design. Um, and I guess this has Marcus's full blessing as well. It wasn't like a, a reverse engineer or anything. It's all positive. So uh, very awesome to see. Um, if anybody looks at the topic, um, I, I totally derailed that topic. This topic was supposed to be about Becker's new invention and celebrating the new revision of the OSSC. Uh, I'm sorry, I completely derailed it and turned it into an open source versus closed source discussion. Because, you know, I think I'll talk about this in the, the Nerds Retro Roundtable podcast next month, or I guess this month now. But um, open source has been a big debate lately, um, and it's hit a lot of the things around the retro gaming world. 
And I was always under the impression that Marcus's OSSC was closed source hardware, open source software. So when I saw a different revision pop up, I, I basically just wouldn't let it go. I had to push the issue. You know, is it or is it not open source? Because, you know, if it is, you can't favor one and not the other. But if it isn't open source, you could do whatever you want. You could, get, you know, work with only one person, work with a million. Um, and then it just went downhill from there. You guys know how forums go. Uh, a lot of really great posts, a lot of people being patient and, you know, and discussing it like adults. A couple of total douchebag trolls, like you would imagine. It happens on every forum. But... Yeah, I feel bad. I, I, I should have made a separate topic for that and not just taken away from the this awesome, cool update. Um, the only things that I didn't get about the product are price, uh, expected availability, and then what are we going to do about the existing open source scan converter. I know Matt has a, a, a shipment that I think arrived to him at Video Game Perfection, um, and I think he's going to be sending out emails to people relatively soon who are on the wait list. Um, and I'm sure those will sell out very quickly. So what's going to happen afterwards? Is it, you know, are there going to be two revisions, one more expensive? Is this going to be replacing the other one? So I think that's still, uh, I, I don't really know what the deal with that is. But um, to be honest, it's my personal opinion that I, there could be a hundred different revisions. You know, I love projects like this, and I, I certainly love open source from the fact that you know, if we want one edition that only outputs analog for people that use CRTs, or one edition that, you know, that glows blue, I don't know. It's, it's the whole point of open source. So uh, I think that if this does become something that a lot of people could add their own different um, branches of the project, I hope to see a million of them. Uh, and if it stays a relatively closed hardware platform, it's totally awesome too. Um, I just uh, I hope that Becker, Marcus, and Matt kind of figure out a solid uh, future game plan so that we'll all know which one to get, where to pre-order it, if we can get it, and all that stuff. So, um, yeah, just always exciting to see stuff like this. I mean, with the addition of 5x scaling, the OSSC is almost perfect as a scaler. It just, its compatibility is the only thing, the only thing holding it back from being pretty much perfect at the moment. So, um, we'll see where that goes as well, and, uh, and hopefully I'll get one of these in my hands soon enough to test. Next, an update from my friends at HD Rectal Vision. First, work on their cables is progressing along smoothly. I guess they got samples of the new build and they tested fine, um, so everything seems to be a go for production. Um, they're going to have the adapters for the Genesis 2 cable for Neo Geo, AES, and Sega Saturn. So you could use those cable, their Genesis cables on both of those consoles. Um, he said they didn't place an order for their PS1 adapters because they were having issues with certain model PS1s. Uh, so that might be for next time. Uh, and they still haven't gotten around to the B-Stock cable repairs. Once they do, those should be up for sale for um, a discounted price, I guess. Uh, so, yeah, good update on those. Um, I hope I hope they get stock on those and keep them, because I think a lot of people constantly ask and want those things. So let's wish them luck and hope they get a ton of stock. I just heard from the Behar brothers, and their Akura Dreamcast box is going to have a very slight delay before shipment. Um, I think they just found one little issue that's being corrected, so that it should ship. Um, originally, it said by the end of March, so I would think mid-April probably, uh, it's just my guess, but when there's a hard ship date, I'll let you guys know, and um, I'll as soon as I get one in for review, I'll definitely post that video immediately. 
Next, Gizmodo posted an article about how uh, CRTs are pretty much done for. They're not being made anymore. Um, they talk about how the last company that was making them sold their production to a different company that couldn't figure out the winding process of the tubes and back, so uh, they just canceled it. So there's really no tubes being made anymore at all, um, and anything left is just uh, new old stock. So, and that in itself is, is dwindling down to almost nothing. And I believe they said that only one company, Dream Arcades, actually has new stock of arcade monitors left. Uh, I'm not sure if that's true or not, but still, you know, it's kind of depressing. And it's something we've been talking about lately. Uh, Dan actually posted a cool thing in the comments last week about it as well. So hopefully we'll all save our BVM and PVMs and the good consumer grade ones and not let them all go to the dump. Um, but... Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's not just sad for retro gamers. It's like, uh, you know, we need museums to hold all this stuff up. And maybe a thousand years from now, you know, whatever aliens are now are now living on the planet will look back and laugh at us. But it's kind of cool. I mean, you could go into a lot of these history museums. I remember walking into a museum in China um, and seeing uh, some old artifacts that were three or 4,000 years old. And it was just... It was silly things, like spoons and dishes and stuff, and lots of, it, it just really blew my mind to see how much was exactly the same as it is today, and how much is totally different. So I think any time anybody's interested in history, things like this would be important. So who knows, maybe we'll, uh, we'll get a couple more museums to get interested in this stuff and have these things be preserved. And lastly, it was something I forgot to talk about last week. Um, BYUU, uh, the creator of so many awesome video game emulation-related things, he's also, I think, the guy who did the MSU-1 uh, for Super Nintendo. Just, uh, you know, he's made a lot for the, the gaming community. Um, he had a package shipped to him that was worth about $10,000, filled with rare prototype PAL games. Um, and the post office in the U.S. lost it, and then were just no help at all about it. Just like, yeah, whatever, you know, uh, maybe we'll get you the insurance back, which doesn't cover the 10000 Um And it wasn't until he started getting a lot of press about this that they even paid attention to it at all. And, you know, it sucks. On the one hand, they deliver millions of packages a day, and most of them get there fine, and that by itself is kind of a miracle. But on the other hand, I've lost... I mean, it's got to be thousands of dollars now because of the UPS delivering to the wrong address, but saying it was delivered even though it was the wrong address. I mean, there's just a ton of stuff that's happened over the years that really sucked. Um, not honoring the insurance that I paid for for whatever crazy reason, even though there's a hole in the box. and you know, So um, it was really shitty, and they finally helped, and they thought they found the box, and then they didn't find the box. And, um, you know, BYUU was really... You know, he felt terrible about everything, and uh, I think uh, he started like a Kickstarter or something to to pay this person back for the lost games, and they eventually found him. Um, they finally found him. They were all in good condition. It was just kind of sitting there. Um, it seemed he seemed to suspect it was theft, but you know, who, who knows what it really is? It's definitely incompetence of sorts. So it was a good ending, and then, like a you know, like a true gentleman, he gave everybody his their money back who donated because he didn't need the money anymore. So that was pretty cool. Um, it you know, I just it's kind of hard to tell. You get no help when you call the post office at all. Uh, when I used to sell things on the website, 
I would track everything to make sure that people got it, and I would always find that when they went through, they would leave my apartment, and when they went through Jersey, they would immediately go out that day, and everything was great. But whenever they hit, I think it was White Plains, it would be delayed for like four or five days. And every time I asked, their response would be, there's no guaranteed delivery time. There was nothing. There was like... So it's a pain in the ass, and it was a scary story, and I was following it the whole time. Uh, and I actually, I think the reason I forgot is because I was trying to get BYUU to come on and do an interview both about this and about all the other work that he wanted. Um, and I think he said he, he wasn't interested, and I forgot to leave it on the show notes. So sorry for being a little late to the party on this one, but at least there's a happy ending. Um, I'm almost kind of glad I didn't cover it at first because it was just somebody lost $10,000 worth of games, but... Everything works, everything's back to normal, so uh, at least there's a, a good happy ending to what could have been a really terrifying and shitty story. Before I start the Q&As, I just want to send out a huge shout-out to Justin Sizen, who actually sent me the timestamps for a bunch of my previous videos. So, really nice of him to do that. Um, I really appreciate it. I've obviously updated those videos with the timestamps, and uh, really, really cool. Thanks. Um, and the other thing before I start answering questions is I have a question for you guys. So I've been working on the Raspberry Pi stuff, um, and I found that code posted that allows the GERT VGA adapter to work. Um, actually, uh, Arcade Forge with their Pi to SCART adapter posted a slightly different code uh, that also works great as well. It seems to be like the happy medium for arcade games. And then I found somewhere else code that allows you to use an HDMI to VGA box. So one of those just cheap $20 things, you set your Raspberry Pi to 480p, stick it through this thing, you're done. That works, I mean to 240p, that works. So you're able to get, you know, you don't need an analog adapter, you can go digital to VGA to 240p. The only thing I haven't figured out, and I got it kind of working, the, the image doesn't work right, how do you go HDMI to component in 240p? So the same code for the other two solutions won't work. Um, adding basic code like HDMI equals to uh, HDMI group 87, that doesn't work. Uh, so does anybody actually know how to do that? Um, digital output HDMI 240p into a component converter out with component video. Um, I think ideally the better option would be all analog and then use the you know, VGA to component or SCART to component converters after that. But there are some scenarios where people would want to use the HDMI out. Uh, the most common one that I would suspect is that somebody already has an HDMI to component converter and they just want to try it out first. So if anybody knows how to write that code uh, or what the code is, um, please let me know and I will update my page with it and of course give credit. Next, Dr. Lilo asked, is the Switch a ninth generation console? Um, that's kind of a good question, because the short answer is yes, because on Wikipedia it has the Wii U listed as a ninth generation, or an eighth generation, which would make this the ninth. But um, eighth generation consoles are also Xbox One and PlayStation 4, which I believe the later versions are more powerful. So I think um, if they're going to count the PlayStation 4 Plus. Um, and the later Xbox One is ninth generation, then yes, you would definitely count the Switch as it, but I'm not really sure. That's actually kind of a good question. Next, my friend Justin, aka Goodwill Hunter, asked, when are you going to review that Zin Tianli Sega CD, or Sega VCD player? Oops. Uh, I reviewed that back at my other apartment, and I never put the video together. Um, spoiler alert, 
Uh, it's a VCD player that plays Genesis games off of a CD. Uh, it, load times are meh, and it works okay, and it looks like it could be RGB modded and everything, but it's it's a cool thing to have as a piece of history, not as a gaming device. Um, so I hope, Justin, I hope you keep that thing forever or donate it to some place that will keep it forever, but not the greatest gaming device. But I will have the, the short review of that up as soon as I remember to do it. Sorry. Next, Pat Aquilar, Peculiar. Sorry, you guys know how bad I am with these. Uh, he asked, uh, with the NES RGB, the um, Tim Worthington's board, will it still output RF? If so, does it use the palette selected for RGB? Um, so you have to disable the NES RGB for RF or the standard composite output on the side to work, uh, and those will not use any other palette. It just runs off the basic chips. Um, but if you want, you could actually get composite video output out of Tim's board. You just need to add the connector onto the back. Um, so just, uh, but in a, you couldn't do them both at the same time. It's one or the other. I uh, hope that answers it. Next, Sega J. Sharu. Uh, J. Sharua? I'm sorry, man. I probably just screwed that up. Um, he asked, uh, have I checked the updates on Neo Arcadia regarding the Raspberry Pi SCAR alternative? Uh, no, uh, I don't speak French, and that forum is in French only, and using the Google Translate doesn't work well. It's actually funny, because I have no problem reading the circuitboard.de forums in German with Google Translate, but the Neo Arcadia, I, I don't know, maybe Google isn't good at translating French to English. I did speak to the creator, who said as soon as one was available, he'd email me, but maybe he forgot. Uh, but that's, I, I should remember and try to go back and contact him again, because that looked cool. Next, Sterling Ferenc said that he was having trouble using his Toro on an EDTV. Um, I'm not sure your exact scenario, but I have a lot of trouble with my plasma TV and the VGA input. Very often, the image at the very top of the screen will curve, if not be not compatible at all. Um, and it's not a Toro issue, it's just the way certain EDTVs um, or plasmas or basically any flat screen with a VGA input often process that VGA as a PC signal, not as a, a consumer device. So scenarios like this, um, you might actually want to put that through a component video converter uh, or just wait for the Acura, which is coming up. Um, I'm not sure what scenario you had, but I did want to at least mention that because I have a ton of issues with my plasma and certain signals. And lastly, the real Phoenix, who was uh, I was talking about last week, he was the forum poster that released that game that the um, Kotaku people were acting like assholes about. He posted, and he said, I summarized the situation exactly how it is. Good, glad I didn't fuck that up. Um, and he said, for people that asked, modifying a code can protect a source, because you can't say exactly when the build was done at a first glance. And if you wanted to, you'd need to check the original dates or source code and trace it back. Um, so, if you're just a copyright holder, you know, good luck doing that. So, at least with by doing it the way he did it, he's exposed to just illegal use of intellectual property, which for something like this is, you know, you usually just get a cease and desist letter. It's not like he stole a new game that, you know, was about to be released or something. Um, so, uh, he also mentioned, exactly as I thought he would, if someone gets the rights and says they don't care, he'll uh, send out the unmodified ROM. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's sad that Kotaku has 
come to a point where they're just picking on people on forums. When it was bad journalism picking on people that are, are used to this stuff, whatever. But hey, at least uh, you know, at least we got the real story out for the real Phoenix. Uh, you see what I did there? Okay, up next, I got my cousin Scott with me talking about the Nintendo Switch. Um, I felt like I needed him here with me to, to bounce ideas off of and to uh, put me in my place when I needed it. So, um, yeah, it's uh, we're just going to be two nerds talking about the Switch. So if you have no interest in it, um, you know, don't bother watching or just leave it on in the background and not care. But uh, if you are at all interested in the Switch, or at least interested in a retro gamer's opinion of it, of it as a whole... Uh, you know, definitely chime in. Um, we're going to try our hardest not to make it too long and not to ramble about anything, and hopefully it'll be at least a little bit enjoyable. So, as always, love to hear the comments, criticism, anything, post below, uh, whatever you got to say, I'd love to hear from you guys, and I'll see you next week. Hey guys, I'm here with my cousin Scott, who uh, we've been kind of partners in crime since we were about 10, getting each other into a shitload of trouble. I had him on the podcast once talking about Vectrix and SNES. Vectrix, and there was some kind of SNES mod. I can't remember exactly what it was. Yeah. Well, Scott's kind of behind the scenes for all the retro RGB stuff. Uh, he helps with pretty much everything. And uh, I wanted him on here today specifically because we've been arguing about Nintendo since we were 10 years old. So um, I wanted to talk about the Switch, and I wanted somebody that I know would have a good perspective and uh, put me in my place when I needed to be. So, uh, yeah, I guess we should start from the beginning, right? Sure. The history of Nintendo. Well, I think a very brief rundown. So, Mm -hmm. I guess it really... uh, We were alive when Atari was around, but it wasn't really our thing as kids, right? Yeah, no, I mean, it was around, and I would start to see it in tag sales and stuff when I was a kid, but um, I just saw Nintendo before I was familiar with Atari, and I was... I mean, I think the Atari is great now, and and how abstract the graphics are is something that I think is cool and beautiful. But when I was a kid, it just seemed old fashioned, and I didn't want anything to do with it. Yeah, so. yeah. I don't think I even played one until I was about twelve or thirteen after I had owned a NES. But the one thing that I always noticed about Atari is, you know, games like Pong, it's fine, like uh, uh, um, Asteroids uh, to a point, but. What's that one with the spinner controller where the, uh, we were just playing the other day where you could break all the things, um... Uh, Kaboom, is it? Or... Arkanoid. 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 Yeah. Stuff like that. It's called Breakout on, uh, Breakout. on Atari. So stuff like that's fine, but the general thing about Atari was that you really had to use your imagination in order to, to see what's on the screen. You know, you play games like E.T. and it's just, mm-hmm. it was really, you know, it was a neat interface but your imagination did most of the work. And then enter NES, and graphics made a massive difference. Mm. I mean, to the point where, I mean, you were really just, especially towards the end, like DuckTales, Super Mario 3, you know, the game really showed you everything you needed, and your mind really, you know, it needed to work a little bit, but, I mean, that is a case where graphics made a world of difference, Mm. I think. I mean, to say nothing for Nintendo's incredible creativity for, like, you know, introducing new gameplay concepts like a like a scrolling level in Mario Brothers and or something like that. Right. I mean, that's the real innovation of the, the Nintendo, I think, because if you compare it to other, you know, software that or, or hardware that was coming out at the time, 
I mean, the Nintendo was as popular as it was, at least in the United States, because of the software, not because of the graphics. I mean, there's all these arguments that, uh, right. you know, the way they marketed it as a toy or something like that is... There's a lot of value in all of that, but, I mean, when I look back at why I'm still playing the NES now, it's because there's so much amazing software on it. And I, why I play the NES now is because I enjoy good quality side-scrollers. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny you mention that, though, because that was the other thing, is although I don't remember the NES launch at all, um, I, I do rem- remember reading in that book, Console Wars, how they wanted to launch it as a toy, and that's why they launched it with Rob the Robot and yep. the Zapper, because they didn't want to, they didn't want people to think it was just another Atari with a million games with no, you know, sustenance to them. Yeah, there was stink on the word video game for a little while. But while the NES was a massive success as a gaming console, it failed as a toy, all as well as all of its peripherals. Mm-hmm. So I'm obviously not calling the Nintendo a failure, but it's the first in a long line of of Nintendo peripherals that failed badly. The so, Rob did. I mean, there's a... The there's, Rob did. There there's only, not as many Zapper games as there could have been, but, I mean, the Zapper is probably the only successful peripheral. Uh, but, well, would you call a peripheral successful if it only has 10 games out of 800? I mean, I would say that if it has 10 good games on it. I mean, I... I mean, okay, one, one could mount enough. an argument that, like, like is the... Like, what is the greater achievement in terms of, like, a peripheral, like the Zapper or the Super Scope? I mean, like, the Super Scope has a lot of cool games for it, but it didn't... It, as a concept, it was it was like a one and done because nobody ever wanted to make a bazooka again. But okay. the zapper, like, I think there's evidence that like there's a ton of games that like continue to like you know use that design in future peripherals. Right. So while I would agree that um, if you think of the zapper as something, you know, here here is a couple of games to be designed designed to use with this device, kind of like Tempest 2000 on the Jaguar with the spinner controller. Then. It's a success. If you think of it as something that was designed to be used with a lot of different games in different ways, it was kind of a failure, much like Rob and all the rest of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, but that point aside, you'll, you'll know why I brought that up soon enough. And then you move on to the Super Nintendo, which my favorite console. Um, once again, I think graphics made a big deal, because while there's nothing wrong with Super Mario 3... The horsepower of the Super Nintendo, the better graphics, um, it filled in, at least for my mind at that time, all the last pieces that I needed where my imagination allowed me to just get sucked into the game. I didn't have to visually pretend a square was a video game character. The ga- the characters had life, the colors, this, that controller is arguably one of the best controllers of all time, perfectly fit your hands, six buttons that are easily to remember... Um, all amazing upgrades. Um, once again, though, if you look at the Super Scope as a des- a, something that was designed to be used with, what was it, Yoshi Story or something? And... Uh, Yoshi, there, there was a Yoshi game. I can't remember if it was like Yoshi Safari, I think. Safari, yeah. I, I, there's, there's a handful of Scope games. If you looked at it like that, fine, but it was kind of a useless peripheral. There were a few other SNES ones that didn't really go down. Um, there's the mouse. With the exception of the Super Game Boy. I think that was a massive success because it allowed you to play other games. It just doubled the library of your console instantly. Well, it's interesting if you if you ask yourself, like, like do you consider like the Super Game Boy a peripheral? I mean, it goes in the video game slot. Fair you know, enough. Like, I Fair mean, enough. Another thing that you would say about the graphics is that, you know, it allowed... It's probably like... 
achieving the limit of what a designer would need to be able to execute all of their bold ideas for side scrollers. Now, obviously, you can't do something like Super Mario sixty four or something on the N sixty on Super Nintendo, but you know they say that they first came up with the idea of having Mario be able to ride his friend dinosaur in Super Mario around the time they're making Super Mario Bros. three. Right. But um, the, the the horsepower didn't facilitate it, and just being able to have a character that you could jump on and jump off of was you so know you needed something fluidly. Super Nintendo to be able to do it. Right. So I think this is the point where you and I have always agreed. So, you know, while there's some things up for debate that are pointless to this conversation, up until now, you and I have been on the same page. I think it was N64 that you and I had our first uh, argument about this. Because, and I'll wholeheartedly admit, at that point in my life, booze and chicks meant way more to me than N64. And N64 meant more to me. But um, I do remember seeing Mario 64, and I do remember, I didn't know what it was called at the time, I didn't know how to explain it, but I just saw low frame rate, dithering, anti-aliasing, I was looking at this blurry image, and I've always recognized the fact that N64, you couldn't get to where we are now without it, it's groundbreaking, kind of like Metroid 1, you know, amazing game, I'm never playing it again, I'm playing Zero Mission instead, mm-hmm. or the, the new fan hack that's amazing. So... I never got into N64. I tried to play the Zelda games, but that's that's an argument that I've had that people disagree with, that there are many spots in those games with, you know, from GoldenEye to Zelda, where you now I have to use my imagination again. I'm looking at those... Or is that a blade of grass? Is that some something a part of the game? Mm-hmm. Is that something in the distance? It veers towards abstraction, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. So, that... You know, that to me is where I really started to lose interest. Um, and then, but it was groundbreaking and amazing. And if you, if that was the first console you'd played, we'd, if that was our first console, we'd probably be going apeshit over it and just loving the fact that there's these 3D worlds and there's no denying Mario 64 and the Zelda are phenomenal games. Well, to take Mario 64 and, and Zelda and put it in its own little bucket, I mean, there's groundbreaking video game concepts that are introduced there. But I think that the reason why a lot of people love the N64 was because of the the four controller ports. And I know that based on the games that you love, and they're the games that I love too, like, I like to be Samus Aran all alone on a planet, and it's just me playing against the game designer. Mm -hmm. But there's a huge universe of people that were playing the N64 to murder their friends in GoldenEye again and again and again. Right. And at that particular point in my life, I was playing a lot of GoldenEye and uh, a couple other the multiplayer things. Now, like, multiplayer has become a huge component of video games. Like, I mean, obviously it always was, but, like, much, much more so now. And I think that the takeaway from the N64, besides Mario and Zelda's design innovations, is really making multiplayer gaming something that was, like, essential to a console. Good point, good point. Which has nothing to do with me anymore, because I have no interest in playing with other people. Well, it's funny that you bring that up now, because that multiplayer thing will come very soon back into play. Um, for me, my my hindsight thought on N64 is it's groundbreaking, amazing. The story of how they got that chip inside of it, you got to read the Console Wars book if you haven't. Um, but for me, it, it was something that was necessary, uh, but all it does is make me dizzy. 
all those first-person shooters made me, including, as much as I hate to say it, Wolfenstein and Doom, I loved those games so much, but I would finish an hour session with those and have to go sit down and try not to throw up. Mm -hmm. And if I went back to play those today, it would still be the same way. Um, And I didn't realize till later on in life, you know, frames per second has a lot to do with that. The controls have a lot to do with that. If you sporadically move the camera around, you know. Mm -hmm. It's nausea-inducing still for, like, even people who are familiar with those games to watch someone else play them. Right. So then we move on to the GameCube, and I think this is the one that I... The, my only solid memory of the GameCube was you and I walking through the Trumbull Mall, and you going, you don't understand, Bob. It's this cube that plays games. <laughs> like, um, All I know about... All I really remember about that was your excitement for it, and that it played you know, the, lots of awesome multiplayer games, and that it was one of the consoles that's right on that cusp of... Is it HD? Is it not? What peripherals do I get? But I guess people were talking shit about it, that it wasn't powerful enough, or... People talk... I think it's, like, the first time that people really started talking shit about it, just not having the library that the other consoles had. Like, you gotta keep in mind that, like, I think, like, the defining moment of that generation, whatever generation it is, is basically Grand Theft Auto. And, you know, Grand Theft Auto was a video game for grown-ups, or, you know... Adolescents pretending to be grownups, mm-hmm. um, and, like introduce, like basically, like introducing a new kind of game for a new kind of audience, which is people like us who grew up playing video games as kids, and we didn't want to stop playing them now that we're adults. But the GameCube always like presented itself again more like a toy, like it looked like a like a toy box or something like that. And you know, there are essential Nintendo first party games that you know one should play on the GameCube or play through some other means of course at this point but like you know the the things that changed the gaming industry i think just sort of passed by on the cube and i mean whether it's software whether it's the hardware or not i don't i skipped that generation myself as well i didn't really play anything for a couple i tried the metroid game because the thought of a first person metroid game blew my mind Mm -hmm. and it was the same complaint that i had it was the i would get dizzy Mm -hmm. you'd look in the distance is that a design on the wall or is that something i'm supposed to shoot at or i just that and that was about the time in my life i started traveling for work and everything too so Mm -hmm. by the time that kicked in it wasn't you know i couldn't really do much with it well i came back and played all those cube games or at least mario and zelda and metroid in the on the wii basically Mm -hmm. like once i got a wii and they're all exceptional you know 3d games uh that i happen to especially metroid i I love to death but um you know they're 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 just not to your taste in the first place fair i think the reason i want to bring up the gamecube is because as and i'm not an expert in this generation at all but this I believe it was the first time I really, you know, the Genesis Super Nintendo what console's more powerful thing was a joke. They, you know, it was fun at the time. It was great marketing. It got everybody involved, but they were very similarly specced. We're not talking about like the GameCube versus the Atari. They were pretty damn close. I mean, I don't know if I agree with you there. I mean, I think that the difference between the SNES and the Genesis is a bigger difference in 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 what you see on the screen than the difference between, like, the Xbox and the the PlayStation 2 or the GameCube. I mean, like, those games all look the same to me. I mean, I know that the Xbox could do things that the Cube couldn't, but the games that came out of them sort of felt the same. Whereas, I think in the Genesis and the Nintendo, I mean, 
it was so bespoke, and people didn't make like ports for different consoles. Like, True. like there'd be a game that's like a completely different game on the two consoles. Like Aladdin, yeah, Aladdin, or even just like Mortal Kombat. I mean, like it's a completely different set of sprites for the two games. Yeah, you know, like it's basically the same graphical object when you're looking at like you know maybe they dumb it down a little bit for the the less powerful platform, but. I mean, they still felt like the same games. Like, I felt like when it was the Genesis generation and, and the SNES generation, like, you could define yourself as being, like, ha- having a preference for one or the other based on the kinds of games you wanted to play. Which could, I guess. you know, if that's you're a Nintendo fan, itself, that's, that's one thing. But I think the point that I'm trying to make about the Cube is, what I remember is people saying it's not as powerful as the competition. Um, and people making a big deal about it, whereas I agree with you, they all kind of looked the same to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you enter the Wii. And here's where shit gets weird, and I love it. Um, Nintendo kind of said in their own way without saying, we don't give a shit about graphics or horsepower anymore. We're not trying to be the next Xbox. We want a completely different situa- or experience for everybody. You know, we want, all, we want your grandma to play Wii Bowling. We want, you know, we want you to play Zelda. And I remember uh, immediately loving it. I loved the virtual console. I loved the new games. Um, the new Super Mario Brothers was phenomenal on it. I mean, that's probably one of my favorite Mario games. Um, and a lot of the uh, the new and the um, the novelty of it, when it wore off, it it aged gracefully. I think is a good way to describe it. I think there's people that could. Ma- I would mount that argument. I think there's a lot of people that view the Wii as a as a depository for shovelware, and like it got a bad rap for being home to so many like party games or mini game collections but there are a bunch of games for Nothing the Wii wrong with that though well there are a lot of bad ones well there were a you lot know, of bad like, ones yeah but you know the games that use the motion control on the Wii well i think still hold up and they're novel experiences to play it i mean like I know that you have your feelings about Skyward Sword, so I'll I'll put that one aside well, for the time being. But you know, Skyward Sword basically took almost all of its motion control concepts straight out of Wii Sports Resort, and Wii Sports Resort is still a fun game to compare it to. Like, okay, so everybody knows that the the Wii remote, even with the Motion Plus accessory, is an inferior piece of tech to the PlayStation Move, which is still being used today on the PlayStation Four, but. I would argue that the Sports Champions games that came out for the Move which have absolutely superior like motion control like as a one-to-one connection to your screen or to your controller it's it, they're absolutely inferior pieces of software to Wii Sports Resort which I to think honest, is a I've lot of fun to, to 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 bowl to play table tennis archery sword fighting or all I agree games. but here's the thing for me so the the novelty wearing off part is I remember my dad got a Wii and uh, his neighbor came over to play it and they were doing Wii Baseball, and his, his neighbor wasn't that bright, and he was doing the whole motions of pitching, as if uh-huh. he was a pitcher. As if there was a camera and the Wii was watching him pitch. And while that was amazingly fun the first hour of the first day, we would get up and pitch and just do this, like, sure. you know, like everybody else. And um, that's all I mean about the novelty wearing off from that. Those games are still fun to play, but, you know... Mario Kart still fun to play. Mm-hmm. The thing that only the only thing that really annoyed me about the Wii's Motion Plus was in Skyward Sword. There was that um, there was that one part, spoilers, where like you have to go and you take your sword and you chop really fast to like chop the wood block down and then you get something at the end. I must have done that a hundred times. 
And it never, it never felt right. It never felt like I was doing it right, no matter what I did. And I just, I kept wishing, like, why can't I just press a goddamn button? Uh-huh. Like, why, I mean, the the Motion Plus was so much fun for, you know, for, it would be fun if, for many parts of Zelda, but not the whole part of Zelda, in my opinion. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm sure millions of people disagree with me. But either way, it was awesome and unique and different. And then you enter the Wii U. And here's where uh, a lot of people, and you might totally disagree with me, but here's where, unless somebody convinces me otherwise, um, I I just, I have so much annoyance towards the Wii U. So there's all those stories about the developers, like, looking at the specs and going, like, what, what are you talking about? I can't program for this. And I, apparently the reason the specs of the Wii U were so low is because they wanted to keep the same approachable shape and form factor to the Wii. So it's like... The shape and form factor of, like, the console itself, you mean? Yes, like how small it was. Uh-huh. So they could have, for the same price, had larger components that fit in a larger box that looked more like a VCR, like PlayStation and uh-huh. Xbox. Um, but they didn't, because they wanted to keep it a small thing. Which, I actually think, for the Wii, that was perfect. Perfect. I think it's a good, wonderful form factor for, for the, the Wii. Wii. You know, it broke all those people's molds of what a gaming thing should be like. It's what had grandmas playing the Wii. It's not yeah. this big, intimidating thing. But now it's... And then they came out with that Wii U controller, which as soon as I saw that thing, I went, that's amazing. I could think of so many different games that it could be just infinitely better with a touchpad right in your hand. Like, you know, because I, I liked the DS, but I love playing on a big screen. Mm-hmm. And I just thought of so many... All the creative ways the DS would have things. I also thought of some of the annoying ways the DS did things, so like those Zelda games, but um, I was so impressed, and then I read the specs, and then I read, you can't use more than one Wii U gamepad with each Wii, Wii, Wii U. Um, you know, they said that there was going to be an option to do so, but like, nobody really released software for it, so it didn't, right. it didn't really end up so, getting out. And it's so expensive to replace it. And it was so slow. I mean, have you ever tried loading a Wii game on the Wii U? I don't believe I have. Oh, it's everything about it. The menu system, yeah, how it connected to the internet, like, everything. Oh, I don't know Just... about I mean, like, it's if, if you wanted to launch... There, there's the quick start menu on the Wii U that yeah, works a little bit a better. Year, yeah. A year plus after the Wii U came out, that, that was added. Well, that's absolutely fair, but all these consoles the last few generations have had, like... You know, not just nominal like updates to them. Like they've changed the way that you navigate these interfaces in you know True. like over time as they improve it. Like I, I agree with you that there was like the, the list of things that went wrong with the Wii U was a mile long, and a lot there's more problems when it launched than there is now that it's basically dead. But I mean, I feel that there's. The game, like, like when I use the Wii U, and I still do from time to time, um, I can generally get into a game about as fast as I do on my PlayStation Three. But that's only because I have it like set up the way I want to, and I use the same games over and over again. I guess. I think my final consensus on the Wii U is that the fact that it was so underpowered didn't hurt any of the first-party titles at all but absolutely hurt the fact that other developers didn't want to bother porting their software over to it, knowing that they were going to have to do a lot of work. 
And then once again, like we discussed before, the Wii U controller, the actual touchscreen controller, became a peripheral that nobody wrote software for. Mm-hmm. Um, Even Nintendo. I mean, at the end of the day, yeah. like Nintendo had these like grand ideas about asymmetrical gameplay that they were going to use this screen for, and that you'd have like one person using the gamepad, and then multiplayer games where everybody else was using Wiimotes and stuff like that. But in practice, there were very few pieces of software that ended up utilizing them. And certainly if you look at like the big Nintendo first-party products like uh, Mario World, like uh, or, or Super Mario 3D World, like absolutely could have been an opportunity for them to do cool stuff with that damn controller. And in practice, there was really very little to it. Um, every once in a while, you come up with some like gimmick, like um, yeah, Mario or uh, Treasure Tracker, the uh, Captain Toadstool. It's a very cool game, and it uses the Wii gamepad in an interesting way. But most of the game, you just play it, you mm. know. Now I will, but I will say one thing, which is going to factor right into the Switch chat, which is that I, when I play the Wii U. I play probably more than fifty percent of the game of the time I spend on it. I've played on the gamepad with something else on the TV screen, either like my wife is watching something on the TV and I'm playing, or I'm playing something that's sort of like low commitment. That's not like a Zelda game or something like that. Like I'm I'm playing Shovel Knight for the second time right now. I don't really care to have the music on, so I might have something else going on. I might have the news, or I might have a movie on on the television set, and I just have it. Or on, my podcast on the, that you don't pay attention to. Or your podcast. <laughs> that's, that's actually one of the ones that I have. That's actually one of the Figured. things. I, I was watching your podcast while I was playing Shovel Knight last week. Shovel Knight would make my podcast better. But um, but that's a, that's a cool way to game as far as I'm concerned. But I also live in a universe where I spend more time on handhelds than I do on consoles. So my only, my only thing which actually does tie directly into the Switch is that I would have loved to be able to play the Wii U on my big screen in the living room and then take that controller and just kind of play it in bed while I was falling asleep. But that thing wouldn't go, wouldn't even go around the corner in my old apartment. Mm-hmm. And what kind of blows my mind is that any anybody who lives in a city, in an apartment building, around other apartment buildings, you open up your phone, your laptop, you see just hundreds of wireless networks that all interfere with each other. They all create, you know, some kind of, you know, severe interference, especially if it's only on a 2.4 gigahertz channel. And, I mean, I can't... Tokyo's got to be the same way. When these guys in Japan design this, how do they not factor that in? So I couldn't use it. I couldn't use it unless I was in six feet away from... My, you know, my TV at max, and then it would still sometimes give me weird, you know, line of sight with nothing in between, with the Wii U sitting on top. I could play it, as a coincidence, I, I, I have the same situation, I couldn't play it in bed. I'm not one to play games in bed anyway, but like, I actually could, one thing that I could do with it was I could take it into my kitchen, it managed to work in my kitchen, and I would sometimes, like, put the Wii gamepad, like, in my cupboard, and um, have Netflix going while I was washing dishes. And it was actually kind of like a functional solution. And I felt like I was in the absolute minority of people that could actually yeah. take the damn thing like more than like more than away from their couch and but be able to utilize it. You're also it. in the minority of people that wouldn't just use your cell phone or tablet to do the same exact thing with a bigger and better screen. But that's, that's it. at the time, I didn't have an iPad, but uh, it was enough. better than my it was better than my phone in that regard. So. 
Definitely think it was underpowered. Definitely, uh, and the reasons why it was underpowered annoyed me. I mean, the the reports could be lies or, or exaggerated, but it was many, many people that basically said the reason they they made it underpowered is because they wanted to fit into the same thing. That's so. the first I've heard about that. I mean, that's that does sound like a an awfully huge misfire. I mean, it, a short sightedness to be sure. I mean, hmm. uh, it's it's been the emerging trend for like. You know, more than a decade now that the Nintendo console is going to be underpowered compared to everybody else. Well, that brings us to the Switch. So I didn't want to leave it next to me because I knew I'd be probably playing, you know, fondling it the whole time we were sitting here. But, so, on the hardware side of the Switch, there's a few things that I immediately notice. That before anything else, before games, before the, the specs inside, um, I generally love to play on a big screen i don't want to play on a handheld console so first and foremost like why are we paying for the extra screen and then second of all like what's up with the battery in this then so if i leave this docked 24 7 like any normal person would who's not using it that battery is going to be like any other lithium-ion battery and go to 199 199 and even if they program in some some great algorithms to try to help it from doing that you know, this battery is going to be dead in two years. I mean, if I... Because it's bad for a battery to go 199? To be, to be plugged in... Yeah, that's why so many laptops, if you leave them plugged in 24-7, the battery's dead within a year. Because that's all it does. So maybe they have better math to, to prevent this from happening. Maybe... I don't I don't really know. Can one replace the battery on it? Um, it does not look like it. Just like you can't really replace the battery on the Wii U controller, but you could take it apart. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing, hardware-wise, that was just announced is... But can you imagine a universe where that's solved? Like, besides some kind of software solution for the way that it, it yeah, behaves in the dock? Don't require, don't require whatever is the main part of the console to have a battery in it. But you're, yeah, but, but you're holding the console. It's a handheld console. Yeah. Still, those are the things that popped into my mind. Uh And then the other thing was that these cartridges, which are now cartridges again, the save game file saves on the Switch and can't be transferred between consoles. I mean, does that affect your life at all? I mean, I I hear people talk about this kind of stuff all the fucking time. And to be honest with you, like, oh, okay, but like, why would you want to migrate your save file anyway? What I'm sure that there's answers, but I mean, like, what, what? But but in your life, like, when would you want to do that? So if you have your 3DS out and you're playing Zelda, and you you know you've you've patiently gone through the entire thing so that you have every item, everything you want, and then you drop your 3DS and you step on it and it breaks, that sucks, and you just lost 200 bucks. But you pop your game out, you get your new 3DS, you plug it in, and you pick up right where you left off. Are you certain that it that it lives locally on that thing and it doesn't get pushed up to your like? Nintendo account or something like that? Uh, that's what Nintendo has just confirmed, but there's no... You know, who, who's telling what they're going to do tomorrow, but that's what they confirmed today. And, you know, the, the little you know the little thingy to, to prop it up. I mean, you know, all those commercials of those millennials sitting on a basketball court, propping this thing up, playing with the Joy-Con controllers, it's like... It's, You're putting it on a couch, Bob. It's different. No, no, no. Uh, that, that's not what I'm talking about. This is a tiny-ass little screen. You really think a bunch of people are going to be crowding around this trying to play a game? Yeah. Really? Absolutely. 
you you and I then completely are, are in different worlds. I mean, I, I I understand that um, one at a party might want to put it on a TV, but that's why it can connect to a TV. I mean, like that they they have a solution to that. This isn't necessarily so much for being able to do that there. I think that and and what I've been reading about is that people have been like it's just a way for them to play handheld. Like they'll take this and they'll put it on their table and they'll play like that with the with the controller on a little screen like on their bedside table or something like that and it's an option that's available to to a person. But that's also like this is this is uh this is gravy right here. I mean like the most of the time they want you playing on this screen is with the controllers attached to it as a handheld where it's an enormous screen compared to every other handheld ever released. Well, true. True on that point. Compared to every handheld release that's an enormous screen, um I did play a couple Maybe of games big. on my iPad which I I thought that was amazing. Um and going down to a little screen compared to that. I mean, that's, I guess that's, one of, when looking at it like this, that's one of my beefs with it. This is just a tablet now. It's just a tablet with some cool controllers and a way better library of games. It's not a game console. And if you start playing with a tablet, then is it, how come it doesn't work like a tablet? You know, it's, maybe it's just confusing. People just need to get used to it. But... Uh, I mean, the, the bottom line is, and, and we can talk around this all we want, but, like, all this is, and all it is ever going to be, is a delivery system for Nintendo products. So long as Nintendo is resolute against releasing, you know, their wonderful games on Sony and Xbox consoles, like, we're stuck with whatever they want to continue to do. Now, I'll say that, for my part, I mean, I, I see what you're getting at with every single thing that you said right now. But I think that's also based on the fact that what you basically want is a console. And what this is is a hybrid. And what I've always wanted was a hybrid. And this is the first console that delivers on that concept. I mean... From my vantage, when I look at this, like, okay, yeah, it is a tablet. Everybody already has a tablet. I don't think that there's a burning need for, like, multi-purpose objects that, like, to be able to watch Netflix and uh, do whatever it is that people do on their PlayStation 4 or something like that is all well and good because, you know, people, you know, space is a commodity at this point, but, like, at the end of the day, like, you can also watch, like, Netflix on something that's, like, literally this big that you right. can plug into your television set. Like, having another device where you can do that is, like, like having a, you know, like, doing, having a device that does one thing correctly is not a bad thing as far as I'm I am concerned. actually 100% on, on your page with that one. I love that it didn't ship with apps like YouTube and Netflix, and I hated, I hated how much focus they put on the Wii U about this is going to be your living room controller. No, it's not. How about you not spend that much time on making the Wii U Pro con- or the Wii U Touch controller a remote, and you spend more time making games that we like? Like that was just. I like that. That is at the very least now it is just a game console with Nintendo games on it, and that's it. That is the one thing that I do love is they're not trying to be anything other than a game console. Well, there's another key thing on top of that, which is that, like, Nintendo 
for, uh, for, for most of our lives now at this point, has been dividing their energies between their console games and their handheld games. And their handheld games, as far as I'm concerned, are not to be discounted. If I was to pick my favorite library of video games in the history of video games, I would pick without a second hesitation the Nintendo DS. I think there's more cool software, more innovative, adventurous software on the DS than anything else. And Nintendo made a lot of that stuff. They also had a lot of third-party support on the DS, which they haven't had on their consoles. If this allows like a consumer to buy one device and get all the cool games that Nintendo has to offer, and some of them are going to cost $60, and some of them are going to cost $20, and then maybe some of them are going to cost even less than that, the same kind of stuff that you would find on like an app store or something like that, like a little one-off thing that costs a buck or something like that, if Nintendo delivers that kind of content to this, then just in pure like business sense of like resource management, I think it's going to have a powerful lineup of games. At least on the first party side of things. If people, if, I don't have any position on whether third party people are going to grab onto this. So I agree with a lot of what you just said, but here's my issue with this. Um, the only way to play that on a TV is if that is docked. So all of those amazing, creative, and innovative DS games... You can't use this like you know, like the Wii U Touch controller, and have something on the TV at the same time. Oh yeah, that, that's absolutely true. Like everything that was cool about the two-screen concept, the DS and the the, the DS, the 3DS, and the Wii U, gone. That's because in some ways this is a bit more of a conservative idea. Like this is not as weird as the Wii U. This is not as weird as the DS. Like it's a sexy object that I'm coveting and contemplating how I'm going to steal it from you after we're done recording this. <laughs> like, it's pretty. I, I, I think that, like, it just has a, a beautiful form factor. It looks like tech rather than a toy. The, the the sound that it makes when this thing clicks into place is satisfying. I mean, it's it's conservative in, in a certain sense. Tell me it feels sense. good in the hand. Say that. It feels good in the hand. It feels good in the hand. You are like every other douche on Gizmodo. I, no, but it does, Bob. <laughs> it does feel good in the hand. I mean, it's got good balance to it. I so, mean, as as a little tablet gaming thing, yeah, it's pretty cool. And I love, I do love that if I'm going to play games on the go, you know, I'm, I'm getting older, my eyesight's still perfect, but I still, I would want to look at a big fucking screen. You know, I've saved up my money, I worked my balls off, I bought a big-ass TV and had my friend calibrate it for me. I don't want to go back to looking at a 320 by 240 little 3DS screen. That's awesome. That is cool. If if I'm going to play the game portable, that's how I want to do it. And the big difference between other games, and especially Sony tried this too and failed, like the whole point of if you're playing on a big screen and you're into it, and then we got to jump on a subway for 45 minutes, it actually does work like the commercials. You pull it right out of the thing, you keep going. Mm-hmm. So that part that part's cool. Um, the one thing that I seem to disagree with most people is that I actually do not mind. Um, I don't mind the controller plugged into the little housing thing. Yeah, a lot of people have been beefing about that. I'm wondering if they have bigger hands than I do. And I think um, people said that the uh, Wii U controller was better. I like this infinitely better. I think this just it's well, not. I the think people are saying fit. that. I think people are saying that the controllers plugged into the screen is less comfortable than than the Wii U. That's apples to apples, you know, like a... Yeah. I, 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 well, people have their beef with that thing, just too. Just in but. general, people have their beef with this thing, and I mm-hmm. think... I mean, I don't have a problem with it. I also have... You know, I got big hands, but not, like, 
gigantic like Jason or Nigel or you know big large friends that we have. So maybe that's part of it, but I have I have no problem with that. But when it comes down so the functionality wise of the hardware, we've covered time will tell. Maybe they'll come up with another Joy-Con where you can hold it like this and it'll have two screens so you'll be able to play DS games on it. That'd actually be pretty cool if they had left and right buttons here. Yeah, you know... So they would snap it on and play it like that. When they first introduced it, like the day after the comer- like the first Switch commercial came out, I can't remember where I was reading it, but somebody started like specking all the things that you could do. Is that a game could come with, like, you know, it ends up costing $20 more and it comes with a special con- like controller that you click in. And uh, the one that clicked with me where I said, like, oh, yeah, they could totally do that was um, the fishing game could come with a controller that had that you could, like, spin a fishing so rod and stuff like that. So that goes back to what we talked about before about it's not a peripheral if it's only designed for one game. It's just part of the game. Mm-hmm. See, we didn't waste all your time with all that other bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> no, so, it, is, it, it, it is true that if this thing is a touchscreen, which it is, right? It's a multi-touchscreen, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? It's, like, it's, it's, it's a capacitive touch, like a... Like an iPad, not like a pressure-sensitive one, like right. a DS, right? So it it basically limits your ability to play those kinds of games, right? When you're when you're playing it on this, right? Right, um, and also with the Joy Cons having the motion controllers built in. Now this is the next generation of it, smaller and easier, so you don't lose any of the functionality. I mean, from a controller point of view, I think this is genius. It does like four things in one. Mm-hmm. Now there's there's two controllers, there's one controller, you know, two two small, one pro. I mean, although this is kind of to play games like this wouldn't exactly I'm curious. Be the have most you have you can you play uh, Shovel Knight with uh with with it like this? I haven't tried, but I'm sure I could. I bet you could. I'm I'm curious. I mean, like it's it's not that bad. I you're but, you're not you're not going to be able to play Mario though, right? Because you, your, your left hand is always going to be paired with the analog stick, right? Yeah. Okay, so that, you know, not having a D-pad is a bit of a demerit, right? Like this, on the left side, it's yeah. it functions like a D-pad, but it's but it's not. Right, so I'll, I'll actually defend the controller in that. Um, it, this was designed to be comfy as a pro-style controller in the dock, just functional enough mm-hmm. to use them singly and also their motion controllers too yeah um, does, the, does the pro controller like look like this or does it have uh... it, it looks like an xbox controller yeah but does it have a d-pad is what i'm asking oh i don't know that's a good question i don't know either they're 80 dollars, so i refuse to buy one <laughs> but um uh, mark from my life in gaming says it's the most comfortable controller he's ever used the and pro controller the the switch pro controller mm-hmm. So all hardware functionality aside, the the specs, the power specs of this, um, and we'll get into the game in a second. But uh, when I first turned on Zelda, and you know, and I, we're not going to have any spoilers at all. By the way, what we talk about game wise is ten minutes into the game. Yeah, we have nothing to spoil. <laughs> but when when you first wake up and you walk in, like there are, there are so many things that I saw. Where I was just like, there's so much attention to detail. This is, everything I hated as a kid isn't there. You look at a wall, you know that's a wall. It's not. A, it's a design on the wall. It's not an enemy. It's not all the things I couldn't stand about the N64, or really even the GameCube, and, and in some ways the Wii, to when the Wii was trying to be something it wasn't, it doesn't exist in this at all. In, in Zelda, at in least. In Zelda, yeah. So, you know, you walk outside, you could tell, but... You know, you could tell the blades of grass versus the ground. You could tell when something's out of place, 
which is really important. I mean, they just they just found this 900 and some. I'm getting the number wrong, but they just found the last coin in Donkey Kong 64. Yeah, I heard about that. Yeah, I'm playing. Because <laughs> you can't see the fucking blades of glass, grass or anything else in that one. And then this, yeah, it's great. But the one thing that I do have to think about is uh, being a nerd, not as, as a nerd, not as a gamer. You know, th- you have an NVIDIA tablet here. What if that game was written for, like, a solid piece of hardware? Would they have spent the time to make that much... Would they have been able to have that much more detail in it, or it, or not? Is it? Would it have been the same exact game, but maybe just a slightly bumped frame rate, or...? It's a worthwhile question, and we could say... Well, let's say right off the top that it's Zelda. They spent, like, a million years on it, and they have everything writing on it that needed to be perfect, and it is. Everything that I hear about the gaming industry right now, which clicks with me, is that, you know, if you want to make a big budget title, like, do you know what they spent on Grand Theft Auto V? I mean, it's it's more than they spent on Titanic. I mean, like, it's, it's, it's like, like like a half a billion dollars or, or more. I don't, I, I'm not even sure. Um, you know, at a certain point, it's enough to, sus- like, to suspend your disbelief. And everybody likes to see the great new graphics and all, but at the same time... I don't find myself becoming more emotionally immersed in the universe the more graphically impressive it is. I, I and I listen, I don't own a PlayStation 4 or an Xbox One, so I can't say this like in practical terms, but I've seen it. I have friends who have them and I've spent time in front of these consoles. Like there's absolutely nothing in front of the, that I see in front of me that that puts me in the game more than the games from the PS3 did. Now, on the other hand, there are games that like take their craft to the next level where you feel like it's a more fully realized world. And in the same sense that the Zelda game feels like people have paid attention to the way grass moves in the wind or how, you know, Link's feet land on uneven ground because it never feels like his foot is like buried underneath like a polygon or something like that. It's always perfect. And if he's standing in a tree, you feel like he's actually got his hand on something that he can hold on to. Truth. All that stuff is attention to detail type of stuff. It's just the same as like playing something like The Last of Us where they said like, okay, well, if a building is in disrepair for 15 years and then leans up against another building, like what does that do to the way that the... That these that these office chairs that have been sitting in there for forty five years of you know like you feel that there's a human being that sat down and thought about that yeah they don't necessarily need to have a gazillion polygons to be able to put that on the screen I mean it helps and all but the thing that matters is that there was a person thinking about it and there's a person who made design decisions to be able to implement that in re- in in the game environment now I know that like you can do a little bit more with more polygon work but. I think we're at a point now where it has more to do with the artists and the technicians that are like working within the interface than the hardware itself. Which is why the, this is why um, Sony and Microsoft are imagining their consoles lasting for a decade because they're going to be able to soup it up via offline horsepower a few years down the line. And they're basically saying to themselves, like, we have everything we need to make games into the foreseeable future. There's no way that this Switch is going to last ten years. They're going to come up with some other little gizmo or another gimmick in five or six years. And, you know, I'd be happy to see 
the creative minds at Nintendo make a new style of game for me to play with their new style of hardware more than I would like to see the next leap forward in polygon count. And that's not to say that there's, you know, maybe virtual reality needs a more powerful console than a PlayStation 4. And, like, if it fundamentally changes the kinds of games we play, then that's another matter altogether. Yeah, that's a completely different discussion. So I think, at the moment, my preliminary thoughts, I don't want to say final thoughts because the console is less than a week old, but um, as a nerd, I see how good it is, and I can't help but feel how much better it would have been if they took a different route. But as a whole, maybe this was the right choice. Um, the fact that it's an NVIDIA tablet, an Android-based thing, um, porting games to it might be easier. I'm going to get a game developer on the podcast soon to talk about that. Um, could be potential... Mobile games, you mean? Or is there all kinds of stuff? All kinds of stuff on Android now, so yeah. Um, and also, uh, because it's on a non-proprietary platform, if the Switch 2 comes out in three years... It's kind of going to be like the new 3DS. It's really not that big a deal. Everything will be backward compatible. Uh-huh. You know, just the newer one would have the newer features. So it, it does allow for an open gameplay. And with Zelda, I've only played uh, Shovel Knight and Zelda. I haven't hit that point yet, four or five hours into it. I haven't gotten motion sick. I haven't gotten to that point where, unless you're looking in the distance, but you're not looking in the foreground thinking, is that a blade of grass? Is that an enemy? Is that a fucking a bug in the game like I haven't gotten any of those I've been I've been impressed I just uh I'm skeptical at the power and I've heard I've heard people talk about um they get frame drops when there's a ton of stuff going on on the screen which in is in Zelda or just in Zelda the- of course, it's an open world game. I don't think... That, is there a single open world game that doesn't do that? No. Like, who doesn't say that... Who doesn't see that in Grand Theft Auto? No. No, you're totally right. But the bottom line is the more power, the less frame drops. No, but... This, yeah, but the, there's... Grand Theft Auto is on the newest and latest consoles. Like, the same fucking thing happens. It's an open world game. You have a... You have a... A, a gameplay area that's the size of Connecticut or something like that. Like, and it sometimes takes time to load up the new trees in the distance. Like, I, I have a hard time imagining a universe where they, where it's not going to do that to some nominal degree. And if a brand new game on a brand new console isn't pushing the console to the limits, then it's not fully utilizing what it has to offer in the first place. I mean, like, I understand that the, I, I played Zelda for a little while too, and I saw some frame drops. There's no doubt about it. It it exists. I'm not going to pretend that it doesn't. But there's this universe in video games where people need to, like, create points of demerit because everybody scales games on a scale of 1 to 10, and they're like, okay, this is like a 9.7. This game's getting all 10s, but that's besides the point. Like, (laughs) most games are like, oh, yeah, so it's a a pretty good game. It's an 8, but there's frame drops, so uh, 8 point, or like 7.8, something like that. Like, there's this this hypercritical technical universe in, in video game criticism where people are always looking for those kinds of mistakes. Like, nobody talks about how, like, you're watching a movie and, like, sometimes the camera jitters when it's on a dolly or something like that. And, like, oh, yeah, that A-. minus. We do. <laughs> no, I, I, I don't. We like, all, you we do also, more than I do. We also talk about 24p frame rates and things stutter. But anyway, um, all of what you just said is right. The only thing that I could say to frame rate drops is when we were playing Zelda 1 and all of the dark nuts, those little blue things in the dungeons, there'd be a ton of them on the screen, and the, everything would slow down, and it would be so frustrating. Um, that never made me dizzy. <laughs> <laughs> That's 
Does the frame drop make you dizzy? Not at all on the Switch, but on older consoles. It, uh, yeah. But in general, like if, if the frame starts like chugging and and, and, get, and being inconsistent, like would you rather yeah. play like would you like like Last of Us on the PlayStation Four has a, has an option like you can try to play in the best frame rate it can offer, which is like it plays at sixty most of the time, but then sometimes it clicks back into twenty four into thirty or goes lower when like there's a lot of stuff going on the screen. Or you can lock the game into twenty into thirty frames a second, and like it's it's rock solid all. The time. I would actually like to play that to decide that for myself because I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but to move on to Zelda, I think this is one thing. Um, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I'm actually, I don't really have any complaints about it. Um, Evan Amos said he felt like it was the developer's love letter to Zelda, and how it. He felt that it took all of the best parts of the best Zelda games and made a game out of it. I mean, um, and I agree. When I, uh, there was, uh, there was one game, I can't remember if it was, I think it had to have been an N64, where you're on the ranch for like two hours just learning how to... I think you're talking about Twilight Princess. Maybe it was that Because you start on the ranch in that game. You gotta like herd sheep and stuff like that. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't make it through that. I, <laughs> I didn't make it through that at all. And then... You get Twilight um, Skyward Sword, where it's two hours of training before the game starts. Two hours. And then you're you're required to remember everything you learned. Just like in school, you have to memorize all these things and then go use them. The, the Skyward Sword will remind you if you forget how to do something. Oh, this is another yeah. complaint about the oh, game, yeah. Yeah, fucking remind you every two seconds. That little thing always up in your shit. I, I liked the game. I tried so hard to love it. But the sword control started to get to me after a while because uh-huh. it just wasn't doing what I was physically doing. Um, the fetch quest, how you had to do things that had no bearing towards the plot whatsoever. just It all just drove me insane. I finished the game. I, I mean, I, I could have loved it. I didn't. This game, you drop in and you go. Yeah. It's exa- and, and exactly like Zelda 1 and exactly like in Link to the Past, my you know two of my favorite games, um, you know in Link to the Past you could call that first level training. You have to find the castle. You have to, you know, swipe the bush. So that means you have to learn how to pick things up, and then you get the sword, and then you have to. You learn, learn. by doing. Yeah. You learn by doing, which is how I learned. So I did all right in school, and I did great in the real world because mm. I learned by fucking doing things, yep. not by memorizing it. But it's also way more fun in a game to do that. So because the the, the act of, of discovery is one of the great things that games can do. Like when right. you figure out something, especially in forget. Zelda games, that's the best. That's the best feeling in the game. Yeah, and you know, there's a few spots where they're like, learn this move, learn that move. Great, now use it. And it's it's minimalized, at least at the point of the game I'm in. But at least there's not ten in a row, you know. Like when you learned some of the crazy moves in some of the games over the years, you didn't forget how mm-hmm. to do it. You know what I mean? You had to practice it, like the wall jump and, and Super Metroid and stuff like that. But, I still can't uh, wall jump. And that's Metroid. funny as hell. But I like that. I like um, uh, I like how it's it, you know when they say an open world and non-linear, like you can't exactly like in a link to the past. You can't go certain places because you don't have items to get there. So you're stuck in this... When I say stuck, I mean that in a nice way. You're stuck in this one area. Are you still on the plateau? 
Which people say, I, it, from what I I'm read. not going to talk about anything outside of the first part of the game. Because uh-huh. I don't want to spoil anything. But no, I'm outside of that now. Okay. Um, but, you know, you get to a certain point, and you could warp back to it. You know, like, there's... Everything about the game is structured in a way where I don't... Like, I, I, I haven't disliked anything about it yet. Mm-hmm. Which is so rare for me in any 3D game at all. Absolutely. So, I mean, I completely agree with you in a general sense, and I would say that it's the first, and, and I've spent less time in the game than you have, but it's the first time that I've played a, um, uh, open world game where I feel that there's attention to every inch of it that uh, one would pay play to a level in a regular game that's not open world. You know, um... When you play Skyward Sword, for instance, like you get plopped into this area and uh, it's valved in such a way so that you can walk around in this path until you get this other path, and then you can kind of come around this way, and then you have to come back again, and you need to come around this way and do it again. Like all of that is um, representative of a, a designer that's building the landscape in such a way so that you interact with it based on not just like I can walk anywhere I want, but I need to be able to figure out how to get where I want to go. And that seems that attention to design seems to be um, placed in every area that I've navigated in, in Breath of the Wild so far. Um, and I'm very excited to be able to spend time in the world for that very reason. Because, you know, I've spent some time in uh, Grand Theft Auto San Andreas and Grand Theft Auto 4 um, over time. And something that I always... Like, I'm not into that kind of game. And what I would like to do is just explore the world that the people have designed, which a lot of people like to do with Grand Theft Auto because so much attention has been paid to it. So I would just get in a car and I would turn on the radio and listen to their amazing music and it would just literally drive around for, like, that's all I would do. And for for an hour or something like that. And I got a lot of joy out of that, but it also, like, made very clear to me, like, how much of the the, the gameplay world was an absolute wasteland. Where there was never, they never meant for you to do anything particular in this point, in this spot in the game, except maybe get into a shootout where you're driving in a straight line, or or you're going to cover behind something. And every once it's in a while, the gameplay, you you're talking about certain parts of the open world were never designed to do anything other than ninety percent of the open world is. And then you would sometimes stumble across areas where you're like, oh, I bet this spot is going to take place in a level. And if you actually play play the levels, like, oh yeah, this is when you get on the on the dirt bike and have to get into a race because there's a little loop and you you like there's places where there's meant to be jumps and stuff like that and the level of attention that's put into that area because it's it's gamified in that place is is like clear as day different from like 80 percent of the landscape that's all around it where all you're meant to do is to have like you're supposed to enjoy how open it is and how you can do anything you want there but you can't do anything you want there you can cover behind buildings and you can drive and you can shoot and you can jump on nothing and you can um, rape prostitutes. Whereas in this game, you know, like, you can actually, you know, you have a, a limited tool set. But, like, when you stand in this place, they might have built a, a little puzzle where you're supposed to say to yourself, like, okay, if I want to kill those guys, I might be able to shoot that lantern with an arrow and get it to fall and blow up those things to kill them. Like... Every single inch of the world has some little gag like that. But it's not set up. It's not set up so the only way you could kill them is this way. And no, but it, but it presents that as a possibility for you right. to be able to figure out yourself. 
I think one of the things I noticed immediately is when we both started the game, um, I played it first, then you came over and played it, and we went in opposite directions. We had a completely different experience. Completely playing, yeah. different. And then, what, a half hour later, we ended up at the same yep. spot. And uh, I like, I, I do, I think they must have done this on purpose, but uh, the old man, once again, no spoilers, we're talking two minutes into the game, there's at one point the old man's like, go there if you want, if you want. Like, one of those, yep. like, it, it's very, it's it's blatantly telling you, like, this is, there's going to be no little navvy yelling in your ear the whole time. Yep. And that's what I loved about those other ones, is it's just you and, you know, trying to figure your shit out. Nobody trying to push you in a direction. And it's not impossible to figure out where to go next, either, you know? They give you waypoints and stuff, but but and not choices. always. Sometimes you make your own waypoints, right? And choices and waypoints, yeah. yeah. Um, it's worth saying, and we haven't said this yet, but um, this is not a brand new... It's not like uh, they stopped doing this in Link to the Past and never thought about it again, because people have been complaining about Navi and like the 3D Zeldas for a little while, and... A lot of the things that like are clearly successful and like bold, exciting new design choices in A Link Between Worlds are are matured and made more sophisticated and expanded upon in Breath of the Wild. And there's yeah. so many cool concepts that are explored in A Link Between Worlds that um, you know, like you kind of get the sense that like the designers of Zelda are saying to themselves like, "Oh yeah, never again. This is how we're doing it from now on." And it's absolutely evident that, like, they, you know, they took that same approach in, when they came here. It's funny, because we didn't talk much about handhelds when we were running through the console line. Mm-hmm. But in hindsight, maybe we should have, because this is essentially a handheld in itself. Um, and one of the things that I did enjoy about the handheld consoles is they kind of, they wanted to make their 2D side-scrolling games or 2D top-down games... But for whatever reason, only put them on the handhelds, and there were some amazing ones. Just because nobody would pay sixty dollars for them, and there was a market for a thirty dollars game that looked like that, you know. Good I mean, point. that's my that's my that's my feeling on the matter. But like, uh, once they went three D, they had a hard time going back. That three DS Zelda game, I mean, it felt like I was playing a modern A Link to the Past. I well, I mean, it. obviously that one it takes place on the Link to the Past map, so right. it has that going for it, too. <laughs> so you're right. The fact that they probably did learn a lot from that and applied that to this. But the key difference between A Link to the Past and A Link Between Worlds, at least in the back half of the game, not to spoil anything, is that like in A Link to the Past, you could, you could sequence break A Link to the Past a little bit, but you basically, like, the, 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 like the dungeons had numbers on them. Like you go from six to seven to eight or something like that, and in a link between worlds, they basically said like here's where the dungeons are, hit them in whatever order you want to, and that had a key difference in the way they designed the games. Like to take Skyward Sword for instance, like part of what they felt was a good idea about Skyward Sword is they were going to have like less weapons, but you were gonna they were gonna stack your your the the way you interacted with the game based on like. You wouldn't get the the weapon and use it in that one dungeon and never use it again. You would have to increasingly like use more tools as you navigated through the game, more so than Twilight Princess, for instance. Mm. Like you would be using that weapon that you got at the beginning of the game. You'd still be using it at the end of the game. Now they can't do that in the Link Between Worlds and Breath of the Wild design because you might not necessarily have that tool when you get to that point. So they needed to design it in a way that you could basically go anywhere you wanted. But that opened up this universe where you could, like, this world is my oyster. I can go anywhere I want to go. And you can actually attack the, the, you know, 
if there's uh, I don't remember how many like there's if there's six castles in the back half of uh, Link Between Worlds like nobody hit them in the same order like because it, it gave you no guidance in that regard hmm. and um, that is a new design concept that was introduced there which is I'm told rolls forward into it it's it, you one could imagine it fits well in the open design but uh, that, that rolls forward into Breath of the Wild that I think is going to open up opportunities for them to have new and exciting ways for you to solve the puzzles, which is the best part of Zelda for me. Yeah. And I think at the very least, the fact that I'm sitting here wanting to talk about what I like about a new 3D game, rather than spend five minutes telling you everything I hated about it, that that enough would have justified the price. That, and I, I fucking love Shovel Knight, and I didn't want to drag my Wii U into this tiny little apartment, so at least I get to play Shovel Knight again on this. So... And that's about it for a couple of weeks. Yeah. <laughs> or longer. <laughs> Have you had any opportunity to, to think about um, the the destructible weapons in it? Like, yeah. you know, a game where you, you've gotten a little bit further into it than I have. Like, I thought it was a radical departure. I've never played a game like this where you had to, like, recycle through your weapons so constantly. The only thing I think would make a difference is I'm going to assume... No spoilers, just because every other Zelda game, there's a Master Sword. You've got to get the Master Sword at some point, right? And getting the Master Sword will be so much more of a payoff. Because yeah. obviously the Master Sword's not going to break. Mm-hmm. So that that's the only thing. But I, I don't know. It's kind of a non-issue for me, because whenever I break a weapon, I press pause and I change the weapon. And but you don't have it. to press pause, right? There's like a... You don't have to. I just choose to do this so, uh-huh. so I don't lose in the middle of a fight. But I guess it's cheating, but whatever. So Play how you want, right? Yeah. That's open to you to do that in this game, right? <laughs> True. So I think we covered everything pretty well, especially for something that's less than a week old. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I got one, I got one more question oh. for you. Um, now, I don't want to get into spoiler territory, but have you gotten to what you would describe as like a proper dungeon? No. No? Okay. Because the thing that I'm curious about with the games, my favorite aspect of, especially the 3D Zeldas, Link to the Past is a bit more like combat focused, but like... Especially starting with Ocarina of Time, it's about solving puzzles. And the thing that I enjoy the most about those games is that, like, especially the later dungeons in those games are, like, this enormous puzzle. And you have to learn how it all fits together and do, like, 15 things in the right order to be able to, you know, unlock the last door, basically. And I'm under the impression that this game is broken up into, like, a bunch of little dungeons or something like that. Um, I don't want to spoil it, but I, I, I don't, I don't know yet. Uh-huh. I, I think I know because I've, I've read some stuff, but I don't, uh-huh. I don't want to. Well, I've, I've read some stuff as well, and that is the big question mark that I have about the game. And if I was to walk away having beaten the game and found out that, like, okay, they took combat more seriously and they made all this open world type stuff at the sacrifice of having like sophisticated, like interesting three D puzzles. I might walk away from it saying that like I was disappointed with the game. Now nobody's really saying based that, based on what but I've I'm seen, concerned about that aspect of it. Based on what I've seen, you have nothing to worry about. Let's just leave it at that. Okay, very well. That's great news to me. That's the best possible news for me. All right. Well, I think we did a good job covering it. I would like to revisit this in a couple months when we see um, any of you guys' thoughts at all. Uh, I always like to hear everybody's opinions, even if I completely disagree with them. I still appreciate them, except the trolls. <laughs> yeah, fuck you. But if you're going to troll, make it funny. At least make it know that we're trolling, that you're trolling, so we don't <laughs> accidentally do it. But 
Yeah, as always, any, you know, anything anything you want to hear, you want to hear more Scott, less of me. Do I, this angle is less fucked up. Do I look like I'm a thousand pounds sitting at this angle? Probably shouldn't have put the camera this way. I know I'm big, but I'm not, I'm not a thousand pounds. Yeah, <laughs> do this show from right. like this. <laughs> so, yeah, um, anything else anybody wants to hear, let us know, and uh, I'll be back next week. You'll be on, I'm sure, within a mm-hmm. month or two, and we'll see everybody next time. Good talking to you, Bob. Take care.